Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Seamus Khan joins us to read from the 1651 Thomas Hobbes classic work of social theory, Leviathan, or the matter, form, and power of a commonwealth, ecclesiastical, and civil. Seamus shares his advice on reading theory fast, helps us understand how Hobbes conceptualized social contract theory and the relationship between violence and equality, and models how to center the colonial roots of foundational texts. To follow along, click on the link included in the episode notes, or go to www.thesocietypages.org backslash theory. Hi, Seamus. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. So we are here today to talk about Thomas Hobbes. Now, Hobbes is not someone who always appears on the social theory syllabus. So I'm wondering why you've made the decision, because I, I believe you said that you always start your theory class with Hobbes. Is that correct? Yeah, both the grad PhD theory and even my my undergrad social theory class, I always start with Hobbes. Okay, so why Hobbes would be my first question. And then going along with that, I'm wondering how much setup you provide when you introduce a philosopher from late 1500s, early 1600s. How much setup do students need about the type of the debates that they were involved in, or do you just get right into it? So, you know, why Hobbes is kind of, I think there's like a personal answer and then there's an intellectual answer. The personal answer is that I was taught social theory initially um, by a student of Talcott Parsons. And my teacher, Mark Gould, wrote his dissertation with Parsons and actually introduced me to sociology through Parsons. The first thing I ever read was The Structure of Social Action. And in The Structure of Social Action, the opening portions of that book are a discussion of Locke and Hobbes. And so in my own intellectual trajectory, I guess I was kind of introduced to the ideas of sociology as a debate between Locke and Hobbes. The more intellectual answer, the intellectual justification is that I think that social contract theory, of which Hobbes is one of the kind of first examples of, is super important to society. So Parsons articulates Hobbes as like giving one answer to what he calls the problem of order. And Parsons doesn't coin that phrase. It's actually widely used. And the idea of the problem of order is like, how is it that if people are self-interested or or a collection of individuals, when they come together, how is order maintained? And Hobbes and Locke give very different answers to the problem of order. And in some ways, they locate their answers in the nature of man or what man is like. And I think it's sort of important to recognize that undergirding a lot of social theory is an assumption about the nature of, and you know, I understand that this is a very gendered term, but like of man, the nature of humanity. And so what kind of being do you think human animals are? And the answer that you generate to that question has a lot of implications for the social theory that you end up constructing. And so I find that I don't teach Rousseau with this, but I do teach Hobbes and I teach Locke because they give radically different answers to the nature of man. And that ends up being super helpful as a way to kind of stitch through the rest of social theory when thinking about why is it that social groups exist at all? And what is it about the nature of humanity that means that social groups look in the way that they do? Before you have students read the selection, do you set up the argument or do you let them go in cold? and then you work through it together in class. We go in cold and we don't read much. And so there are kind of two pieces of advice that I give for this. And I don't do a ton of setup in part because if you end up talking a lot about intellectual context, students end up bringing in a lot of context or context that they know or think that they know. And that sets up a really high like barrier and it can feel really exclusionary to a lot of students who are like, wait, why does this person know this stuff that I don't know? 
And so I generally have a rule that you're not allowed to talk about things we didn't read in class. And so by implication, I try not to draw in the broad intellectual tradition in this particular moment. So if people who are teaching it are interested, I think the intellectual history that Quentin Skinner writes around this moment is incredibly helpful, but I don't do any of that. And instead, I suggest to students that they read not that much and they read super quickly. And so what do I mean by super quickly? It's like often when we encounter a text that's really confusing, one of the things that we do is we slow down. And I suggest to them that they should speed up and read it a second time. Because if they speed up and get to the end and then go back to the beginning, they kind of know where it's going to end, even if they don't really understand it at that point. And the second reading, which can also be quicker, is much more helpful. And so in the grad theory class, the section that we're going to talk about today, so from chapter 13 from book one, the first class, we just read this out loud. So we move through this entire chapter one step at a time, and it's like five and a half pages. And each one of us reads a paragraph out loud, and then we talk about the paragraph. And the idea is... You know, I use Hobbes to kind of like model what it means to do a close reading, to show them how I think through things as I'm reading and to encourage them to think through things in a particular way as they're reading. And so, I mean, I think maybe a different way of putting this is that I don't actually assign this to be read before class. I read this on the first day of class with them. And that way we kind of move through it together. And happily, another effect of this is that like everything's easier after Hobbes. I don't mean that everything's clearer. I just mean, you know, the language is way easier to read and the texts actually feel a lot easier than this first reading of Hobbes. Well, that seems like a perfect chance to get into the text. So as you were saying, we're reading from Leviathan chapter 13, and I'm going to put a link in the notes to the podcast so people can follow along as you read this and work through it. So do you want to take us into the text? I'll take us into the text. And, you know, you'll even hear me probably as I read kind of stumble because Hobbes, born in 1588, the, the text does not read that smoothly for a modern reader. But Hobbes begins in this chapter, Nature hath made man so equal in the faculties of body and mind, as though there may be found one man, sometimes manifestly stronger in body or of quicker mind than the other. Yet when all is reckoned together, the differences between man and man is not so considerable as that one man can thereupon claim to himself any benefit to which another may not pretend as well as he. So this is the first sentence here. And to me, this first sentence is super important because of the first phrase in this sentence. Nature hath made men so equal. And the first thing to think about is like, that seems like a super radical position, right? I mean, you know, you read that sentence and you're like, wow, Hobbes thinks about the equality of men. Yeah, it almost sounds like the Declaration of Independence style opening. Yeah, absolutely. But as you read the sentence, as you move further forward, he gives two examples. He's like, one man can be stronger in body and another quicker in mind. But basically, they can all end up with the same thing. And later through this paragraph, he basically says, you know, and actually, I'll read it. For as to the strength of body, the weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest, either by secret machination or by confederacy with others that are in the same danger with himself. And then he says... That's where it leaves the Declaration of Independence behind, as soon as it says the <laughs> kill the strongest. <laughs> yeah. And so actually, you know, this is like Hobbes's evidence of equality is that we can all kill each other. And he says, actually, as to the faculties of mind, and then there's a bunch of stuff he says, I find yet a greater equality amongst men than that of strength. And so the first example that he gives of equality is basically nobody's so strong that other people couldn't kill them. 
And this is kind of a startling thing because students come into the class with a really strong preconceived notion of what equality means. And if you just read that first sentence and you allowed yourself to think what you think equality is, you would get Hobbes totally wrong. Because Hobbes, when he says that people are equal, he's not saying that they're morally equal, that they are equivalent, or that they should be equal. What he's saying is that they can kill each other. Like they're equally capable of killing each other. Or maybe not equally capable, but in the last instance, one person can kill one other person. And that is what Hobbes means by equality. And it is a very different conceptualization of equality than what our contemporary conceptualization might be. And so the point I make in this first thing is make sure that when you read something like Hobbes and you see a word like equality, you don't think, oh, equality of ability is this moral position that Hobbes has of the fundamental equivalence of people. No, no, no. That is not what Hobbes means when he says that people are equal. Instead, he says people can kill each other and people in terms of prudence, which is experience, they're basically the same. And some people are a little smarter than others, but, you know, there's kind of an equal distribution of intelligence across men. And it also seems in this area, I don't want to jump to a different section of the text, but not only can one person kill the other, but it's extremely likely that a situation will arise that will lead to one person potentially wanting to kill another person. Yeah, either through machination or other or confederacy with others. Yeah, there's going to be some way in which that happens. And I think this isn't to say this is a really radical thing for somebody to write under a context of a monarchy, right? So, you know, if you're writing in the early to mid part of the 17th century and your first sentence is nature hath made men so equal, you can begin to see why this text was, you know, the students of Oxford burned this text. They burned it because they thought it was atheistic. But even moments like this are pretty radical in the idea that at the core, men are equal with one another. And you can see how this idea might get picked up and transformed over time. And it's something that we'll sort of see. But I also think Hobbes basically wants to say, like, it's not that social conditions make us equal. It's that fundamentally we're equal with one another insofar as we're all roughly as prudent as one another. And any one of us has the strength to kill the strongest person. So this is kind of the first moment, I think, of providing a little bit of a reading where hopefully students can kind of take a step back and be surprised by what it is that they're reading in this moment, but also attuned to how it is that they should read, by which I mean making sure that as they work their way through a text, they don't impose their own definition of concepts onto that text. And I think it's also a good example as you're reading through this, how you want to pay attention to every word, but there's some sections that you can kind of push aside and not get lost in. So even that little parenthetical section after he says faculties of the mind, where he gets into, you know, the arts, the sciences, it's important, but you don't want to get lost in it. If there's anything that's confusing, you can still follow along with the argument. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also why I'm big on reading quickly and reading multiple times versus going really slowly, because the faculties of mind sentence where I, I read like, and as to the faculties of mind, I find yet a greater equality among men than that of strength. That makes a lot of sense. But the reader is looking around, along right now or the listener 
I skipped two, three, four, five lines there because there's a five lines of a parenthetical sentence, which is, as you said, about science and these other kinds of things. And it can be very distracting. And if you're a hop scholar, you should spend a bunch of time on those parenthetical parts. But for us, getting to the end of the idea is actually really important so that then you can go back and review it and make sense of it. All right, let's head to the next section that you've got highlighted to work through. Sure. The other lesson that I kind of highlight throughout this is that fundamentally Hobbes is a relational thinker and that Hobbes thinks about people in relationship to one another. And so Hobbes gives a sort of series of examples of why it is that people act the way that they do. And he says, this is on paragraph that says, you know, from this equality of ability arises... Oh, sorry, which, which page is this on? Oh, I apologize. This is just the next page. This is on page 82 of of that section where it's from this equality of ability. It's the second to last full paragraph or the last full paragraph, the second to last paragraph on the page. He says, from this equality of ability ariseth the quality of hope in the attaining of our ends. And therefore, if any two men desire the same thing, which nonetheless they cannot both enjoy, they become enemies and in the way to their end, endeavor to destroy or subdue one another. And hence, it comes to pass that where an invader hath no more to fear than another man's single power, if one plant, sow, build, or possess a convenient seat, others may probably be expected to come prepared with forces united to dispose and deprive him not only of the fruit of his labor, but also of his life or liberty. And the invader again is in a like danger of the other. And so here, Hobbes says equality actually is a problem. Like, it's not a great thing to have equality, in part because this equality leads to the equality of hope that we could each have the same thing. And if we don't create strong enough disincentives for somebody else, they're going to come attack us and take what we have. And so this equality of ability produces, or from this equality of ability, ariseth equality of hope. And whereas contemporarily we think about equality as something that's like fundamentally good, Hobbes very early on identifies it potentially as a problem, as something that might generate a series of social problems that require resolution. And I think this is also super interesting because, again, it pivots us away a little bit from our understanding. And the point here is not, is Hobbes right or wrong about this? The point from my perspective when teaching this is getting the students to think okay, how can I come to fully grasp this person on their own terms so I can really understand what it is that they're saying? And from this, what you find is that Hobbes then makes an argument, basically that people end up anticipating the fact that others might attack them and they act accordingly. And so we'll kind of skip over this in the text, but it's the next several lines. And he basically says, insofar as you've got something nice, I'm afraid that you're going to attack me. But I might also think, well, I may have to attack you in anticipation of your attacking me. And there's this kind of violence that's fundamental to Hobbes in this moment. So after you get to this point where we can see how violence is the result of equality, but then equality is also the result of potential violence, which, which is kind of an interesting setup, where do you go from here? Because you could see in philosophy, you might get into this debate about what is the inherent nature of humans or of man as the philosophers of the time would write. But where do you go? What's super important to me in conveying to students is that why do people act the way that they do? And for Hobbes, people don't act the way that they do because they have an innate drive to act in a particular way. 
it's because they are in a particular situation or they're anticipating the acts of others and they act accordingly. It's actually not that far from Mead with Mead's idea of the me and the I and the ways in which people act in this interactional sequence of anticipation of others' actions. And this is another really important thing for me in this early part of Hobbes, because Hobbes basically is going to make an argument to us that sort of social action is going to be contextually constituted and largely anticipatory rather than based in the core wants and internalized desires of man. So it's not the case, as we might think from others, that man has particular things that he wants. Instead, Hobbes sets up this system where action is inherently relational. And it's one of the things I love about this early passage is that we can begin to introduce students early on to what it means to think relationally. And that is not to think about man as having inherent wants and desires, but instead in terms of man thinking about what other man is going to do, what other people might do to them, they construct their actions in this anticipatory sequence of interactions. And it sets up a lot in terms of future work that we read in social theory to think about relationality and interaction sequences. And it's the exception to, if my if kind of crude understanding of the history of philosophy is right, it's the exception to a lot of the debates that were occurring at the time. It wasn't that this form of relational thought was dominant among the other philosophers. Oh, not at all. Exactly. I mean, this is also why at the end of this lecture, I often say, or sometimes at the beginning, you know, there's two types of thinkers. There's Hobbes camp and Locke camp. And I'm just going to warn you, I'm really in Hobbes's camp. Like I'm, I'm kind of firmly in it. And it's not that I think everything that Hobbes wrote is great. You know, there's a lot in this book that I it like makes me kind of cringe. But in terms of setting up the idea of uh, relationality and the importance of social context for social action, I think Hobbes really pushes that point forward. And Locke exists in total opposition to this mm. in a way that really doesn't speak to me at all. All right, let's, uh, let's head to the next area that you've highlighted. Yeah, the next major section that I've highlighted is the paragraph in the text that I'm working off. It's up on page 84, the paragraph that begins, um, whatsoever, therefore, is consequent to a time of war where every man is enemy to every man. The same is consequent to the time wherein man live without other security. And so this is that paragraph. And this paragraph has the most famous line that's ever written by Hobbes, I think, the one that many of us might be able to quote when thinking about Leviathan, which is, you know, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short about the life of man. But for me, the more important part comes in advance of this, just before he writes this. And this is when Hobbes says that man is in the nature of war or in a state of war. And in this, Hobbes says, in such a condition, there is no place for industry, because fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious buildings, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. 
Now, I love a bunch about this section. Um, the first is actually just the writing of it. It begins with these kind of long phrases, no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, no use of the commodities that may be imported by sea. So he's got these long phrases and then he gets to this different pacing where he says, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society. The last three things are like punchy. They're like, Tick, tick, tick. I don't know. There's something fascinating about it just from a writing perspective, because in some ways it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. No arts, no letters, no society. He doesn't even need to justify them or explain them at that point. None of them exist. And so to me, the first thing is actually how it's written is really beautiful. And I like to point that out because so much of being able to understand something from my perspective is the narrative effect of reading it. And so to me, he does something really cool there. And then the second thing here for me is that Hobbes basically says that in the state of war, man is nothing more than beast. What this passage says is that in the state of war, there's no industry, there's no culture of the earth. So there's no tilling of the earth. There's no navigation. We don't go anywhere. We can't move anything. We can't know anything about geography. We don't have an account of time. We don't have art. We don't have letters. We don't have society. And this is like, what is the state of nature of man in a state of war? No different than a beast. And fundamentally, what Hobbes says here is man is not man as we understand man in the state of nature. And this to me is a profound idea because it says, actually, when we think about the nature of man, man only becomes man. That is, man only becomes someone who has any recognizable traits that we think of. Somebody who knows something about tilling the earth or is interested in knowledge or has instruments to move things or has art or letters or society until man is put in a particular kind of relationship with other man. And so to me, it's actually this profound moment again of kind of a relational thinking that the social context within which we're embedded is essential to understanding who we are. There's also something interesting there, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but when you were highlighting the rhythm of the paragraph, this goes along with your recommendation that students read quickly, which, and it, it seems counterintuitive mm -hmm. that to read quickly is to find the rhythm, but I think when you read it slow and get caught up in each sentence and saying, well, what does he mean by this word? What does he mean by that statement? you lose that, right? You get you actually remove yourself from the text itself. And I've fallen into the trap of telling students, you know, if you don't know a word, look it up. That's useful. You'll actually see what they're doing with it. But every time you do that, you actually lose that feel. You're no longer immersed in the text. You lose that kind of the ambiance that it draws you into. Yeah, I mean, you know, to me, I'd rather a student read this text three times really quickly than once really slowly because it doesn't, it, you know, and this could be very idiosyncratic, but texts don't become more understandable to me they actually become more painful as I slowly and proddingly move through them. And so you get into this kind of rhythm, you get into this, and then you might be able to see these things that are happening here where, um, you know, I teach this text in this way. It was never taught to me like this. And I don't even know how or why I ended up doing this in this way. But I think it was such a revelation when I reread this section and I realized that what Hobbes was saying was that humanity is not humanity except within society. And humans are beasts absent that. 
humans are beast absent the context where they're overawed by some authority and suddenly don't have to be super anxious about other people, but can do things like create arts and literature and society. And the answer then becomes like, what is the nature of man? It's like, well, it depends. It kind of depends on whether or not man is in this condition of man as animal or man is in this other condition which is man subsumed under the authority of society and the authority of one another, and that the nature of man is determined largely by man's relations with other people. Now, what does he mean by war? Because this, I think, is an important point that you're making, that war reduces us to this state, right? In times of war, you cannot have all those other things. But he doesn't mean mm. war just simply in the most literal translation of war is when the, the missiles are fired, right? It's a great question. I mean, it's actually kind of really weird. It's just above this. And he says, war is a tract of time. Um, so let me just find it. Yeah. So for war consists not in battle only or the act of fighting, but in a tract of time wherein the will to contend by battle is sufficiently known. And therefore, the notion of time is to be considered in the nature of war as it is in the nature of weather. We won't talk about that second part of it, but the first part is actually super important. So war is not just being at war, like it's not the experience of fighting other people, but instead in contexts where the will to contend by battle is sufficiently known in that tract of time, in that period of time, that is what war is. In other words, it's this condition where we might fundamentally fear other people for wanting to attack us. And in that condition, we're not going to invest, Hobbes says, in anything like culture or industry or anything like that. What we're going to invest in is the capacity to protect ourselves from the will of others to attack us. And he says all other time is peace. So in times where uh, there isn't the will to contend by battle, then that is a time of peace. And war is not a state. It is instead a tract of time. Uh, super interesting. To yeah. Me. All right. Let's head to the next section. And I believe the next section you've highlighted ties in very well to the discussion we had in our in the other podcasts that I recorded with you. Great. So this is just a little bit further down from here on, on page 85. And as hopeful as you kind of might be coming out of Hobbes from what I just said, like where I was like, I really love Hobbes. This is a moment where I think you can't read any of these contract theorists absent the colonial encounter or absent the experience that a range of European nations had with colonialism and with colonial violence. So here I'll just read, it may pre-adventure be thought there was never such a time nor condition of war as this. And I believe it was never generally so over all the world, but there are many places where they live so now. For the savage people in many places of America except the government of small families, the conquered whereof dependeth on natural lust, have no government at all and live it at this day in the brutish manner, as I said before. And this is just, to me, it's a super important moment that gets like, when I was taught Hobbes, gets sort of washed over really easily. But for me, the reason it's such an important moment is all of these contract theorists basically start with the same question. What is the nature of man before society? And we might ask, why are they all asking this same question? 
And this was the moment where I kind of had this light bulb go off. And I was like, oh, they're all asking this question because there's so many writings coming back, like ethnographic accounts from the new world about these savage peoples on the places of America and how it is that they live without society. And the colonial encounter throws into relief for all of these European thinkers the possibility of man without society because they imagine these men to be in what we call the state of nature. And so it's a very sobering moment, but it also helps us see how that moment of the colonial encounter sets up one of the most important questions that social theorists grapple with. And the setup of that question, the fact that it even becomes a question, what is man like absent society, is bound to this sort of deeply colonial experience. And I think we can't sort of, in a contemporary term, it would be like this sort of racist interpretation of what the people of the Americas are like. Yeah, it's such an important point you're making because it's not too, as you say, potentially could just skim over this, which we do with many theorists, right? We say, oh, that's their product of their time. Let's just replace that language that they use in that one paragraph with something more contemporary. And then we can think about the rest of their theory. So it's not doing that. It's also not simply to say he was a racist and that that's the end of the story. Rather, it's to think about how the colonial project shapes all these thoughts. I think that I, and I'm just repeating what you're saying, but I think it's such a profound and important point here. And it allows you to continue to work with the text. Yeah. I mean, you know, Locke's solution to this is going to be totally different. He's going to basically say, like, there's something deeply sacred about man as the individual. But Locke and then Rousseau, even more dramatically, both also start from this same position of being able to imagine man without society in part through this moment of colonialism. And I think it's also another reason why I'm not as interested in like placing this within the intellectual context of what a bunch of other people were arguing at the time, because a lot of those intellectual histories don't actually deal with this stubborn fact, which is that when Hobbes engages in this thought experiment about what man is like absent society, it is not a thought experiment. It is actually emerging from his reading of accounts from the range of sort of travel diaries, et cetera, what I described as these ethnographic accounts of the peoples and places of America. And so at the heart of, I think, one of the most important concepts in sociological theory, which is social contract theory and, you know, the resolution of the problem of order that idea only comes through colonialism. And so I think when we talk about decolonizing sociology, if it means removing all of these colonial influences, I'm probably not going to be supportive of that project. I mean, other people will, and we can have a disagreement about it. I would instead vehemently argue for surfacing moments like this in texts and saying, actually, this is not an inconvenient fact in this text, but instead a fundamental feature of it. And we should do similar things when Weber has these really cringeworthy moments about how he describes the Chinaman. And instead of saying like, oh, I guess Weber's racist, we should maybe say, oh, I guess Weber's racist, but then move forward and say like, what is the work that that is doing in the text? And in this case, for me, it's like, what is the work that this colonial encounter is doing in this text? And from my perspective, the work that it's doing is it's making the social contract as a very idea or conceptualization possible. 
What kind of pushback do you get from students in this? Or does that occur? Because I'm curious from my own experience, trying to navigate the class and presenting this argument, when you get to this point in the text, do you have students simply say, all right, I understand what you're saying that this is part of the colonial project, but how do we go forward once we read this section? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the section that gets much more pushback is on 83, there's a section where Hobbes makes equivalent women, children, and cattle. So like yeah. he says, they're going to make themselves master of other men's persons, wives, children, and cattle. And it's, you know, the things that men own, their physical bodies, their wives, their children, and their cows. And there's certainly a lot of pushback there. You know, I service these things. So I don't really let them just come up. Instead, I kind of articulate them in the beginning and say we can't understand Hobbes without this. But I think the other thing is that it becomes a critically useful tool to see this because if you begin to understand that this idea of the state of nature is fundamentally an idea steeped in early conceptualizations of what will become race— it actually makes questions of race not less central to sociology, but more central to sociology. That when people generate accounts of actions and interactions in deracialized ways, what in some ways they're doing is divorcing those accounts from their true origins, which are origins in a kind of racialized thought. And, you know, so for me, I think highlighting this, it doesn't close off a range of discussions from my perspective, it opens up a bunch of other ones. And it's like, okay, well, if our idea of agency and social structure come in part from an intellectual history of colonialism, like, what does that tell us about how we think about agency and where that idea came from, and how we think about social structure and where that idea came from? And what seem like deeply sort of abstracted concepts away from the experiences of, say, race or gender or something like that, suddenly those things become deeply intertwined in those arguments. And I think that's fruitful. So I kind of embrace uh, frustration with this and point out that, yes, absolutely, this may be a problem for the sets of things that he argued, but these things, you know, there's two steps we have to take. The first is, this text has served as a foundational text for so many other people in what they've written. And one of the key posts of that foundation is this colonial project. And so, you know, pointing out the problems of that colonialism is actually really fruitful for thinking through all of the subsequent texts that build off Hobbes. All right. I think that's an excellent place to conclude the podcast, unless you have a final Hobbes-related thought that you want to wrap it up with. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, there's so much more in this chapter that I would love to talk about, but I think hopefully the readers want to read it now, and they'll see how Hobbes says that there's no morality in the world in Tindler's society, There's, you know, and all of this other super interesting stuff. And you know, I hope that it provokes and maybe even is helpful to a few, few students as they're thinking through how to read through theory. You've convinced me that I'm going to bring Hobbes back into social theory when I teach it again in the fall. So I'm going to give it a I'm going to give it a go and see what happens. Give it a whirl. You, you know, <laughs> what I do is I print out these pages and I hand them out on the first day and we just sit there and we read through sentence by sentence together. And it's kind of a nice exercise. It really brings you in close to the text and it models what I hope students do, maybe not as painstakingly, but to teach kind of an experience of close reading. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music. 
Undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project. And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.